This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. We're here with Dr. Bernie Fanaroff, who is the former director of the SKA South Africa. He holds his BSc honours in physics from the University of the Witwatersrand, a PhD in radio astronomy from Cambridge University, plus honorary doctoral degrees from six South African universities. Cambridge, he was awarded an Isaac Newton studentship by Trinity College, and is known for the Fanaroff-Riley classification of radio galaxies and quasars. So, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Jodcast. Thank you for having me here. It's an honour to have you on. It's an honour to be here. First of all, I thought I would ask you about the the Square Kilometre Array and um, Mm. your involvement in the South African uh, involvement in the SKA. How was that for you? How is it for you being involved in the SKA? It's been a very enjoyable project for a number of reasons. I was asked by the Department of Science and Technology to take on the direction of South Africa's bid at the beginning of 2003. And initially our idea was simply to host the telescope. And then about a year or so later, we decided if we were going to be part of the project, we should get involved in the technology and perhaps build our own precursor so that we could build up our own astronomy community and a technology community and so on. So I've been working with a wonderful group of people. We were very lean and mean, but very focused. And that was an advantage because everybody came onto the project was very dedicated and very committed. So we've had some scientists, but a lot of engineers working with us. And it's been a pleasure working with the engineers. I've worked with a lot of people over the years, but no reflection on scientists. The engineers are wonderful. When you ask them to do something, they don't call a committee meeting. They just get on with it. And then they come back and say, okay, what's next? You know? So it's been a pleasure. And we've been able to move from a position where I think a lot of people in the SKA community didn't take us very seriously at the beginning. And as we went on, the team were able to show that they had a lot of expertise and that that expertise was worth listening to. Within a year or so, people started to take us more seriously, both in respect of the site bid and in respect of developing the design of the telescope and the technology. And over the years, we've now been able to build the Meerkat telescope, which at this point is probably the gold standard. I know that might be disputed by the JVLA in America, but I think the Meerkat is probably more sensitive and better dynamic range and so on. So we're very happy with what we've got now, and this science which is starting to come from the Meerkat, I think is going to be spectacular. I really envy the young astronomers who are going to get the results from it. So I've enjoyed the project. It's been a great project to work on, very nice people. What One of the things I've enjoyed about it is that the young people who've worked on our team have really been excited by the project itself, both the technology and the science, and of course by the challenge of the site. But so I'd often come in on a Monday and find that one or other of the teams had worked through the weekend without being asked to do so, just they felt that they weren't up to date. Or Some people worked right through from Christmas to New Year, which in South Africa is traditionally a holiday. Again, no one asked them to do that, so they've been very motivated and that's been part of the enjoyment. Well, we're lucky to have several students and postdocs from the Meertrap collaboration who will certainly back you up on what you've just Mm. said with regards to the science coming out of that. So you've been using the SKA and Meerkat as a vehicle to drive development of the South African radio astronomy community. So right in saying that. That's right. We were initially, as I say, only bidding for the site, but we then started what we called our Human Capital Development Program. And the Department of Science and Technology was 
obviously very committed to using their investment in the science to develop capabilities in science and in technology. So we developed a large grants program for bursaries for young people. So over the years from 2005, we've given support to something over a thousand students to do postdoc, PhD, masters and undergraduate studies in engineering and physics. And we've also trained artisans and technicians and we've trained a lot of people from the other eight African countries that are part of our bid. So about 150 of those bursaries have been given to students from other countries. One of the things we had to contend with that in the area where we're building the SKA, it's called the Karoo. It's the it's a large arid area in the middle of South Africa. It's a very poor area, and the town where the telescope is located, Carnarvon, is a very poor town. So when we got there, we found that there were no maths or science teachers in the schools in those surrounding towns and although we wanted to take kids from the area to university we couldn't find any kids who had succeeded in their school leaving certificate well enough in maths and science to get into university so we started putting teachers into the schools and we developed a bursary program to bring the kids from the surrounding towns into Carnarvon and they stay there for three years and then we have a focus on maths and science there and we eventually managed to get kids who qualified and they're I think we've got 15 or 16 from the area now doing undergraduate degrees in physics or computer science. And we also started training artisans and technicians. So we have about 75 young people from the area who have either been qualified as artisans or technicians or who are currently in training. And all of them are employed on the project because it's much easier to keep staff in that area if they come from the area. Bringing people from the big towns to live in a town that's a long way from anywhere is not easy. So that's that's been very successful, I think. We also created six research chairs in the universities in South Africa, and we used those as a nucleus to develop astronomy groups, or in one case, an engineering group. And in at least three or four of those universities, those astronomy groups have become quite big and quite vibrant. So that certainly paid off uh, as an investment. Hmm. And uh, in terms of the science that Meerkat has been doing, we recently released a lovely image of the, of the Galactic Centre. Hmm. Um, I absolutely love that image. Hmm. And the, the, all the different areas of astronomy that Square Kilometre Array will probe. Are there any of them in particular that you're excited about? Well, they're all excited. The only ones I know anything about are the ones that deal with extragalactic sources, radio galaxies and quasars which have jets. But like you, I was very excited by the Galactic Centre, even though I know very little about it. But I think what's nice about the first images we're getting from Meerkat is, first of all, that you're seeing detail which people haven't seen up to now. And, of course, that challenges the astrophysicists to explain what's going on. It's much easier to come up with a theory, let's say, of jets from galaxies when it's just a blob on one side and a blob on the other side. Once you start to see the fine structure and the polarisation and the detail, it becomes that much more difficult to explain what's going on. But equally, I suppose, it gives you more information so you can get closer to the truth. So that's one thing that's very exciting. The other one is a very high dynamic range so that you can see very faint structure in the presence of bright, compact structure. And I think when we start seeing the deep surveys, we're going to see very surprising objects popping up. One of the things that 
I think is going to be a real challenge for young astronomers like yourselves is serendipitous discoveries. So I was a couple of years after Jocelyn Bell at Cambridge. And of course, Jocelyn discovered pulsars by going through miles and miles of pen charts. And of course, the nice thing about pen charts is you can see them and you can see when there's something odd on them. But coming off the Meerkat or the SKA, you're going to get just a room full of numbers. And the question is, how are you going to replicate what Jocelyn did? So some years back, I asked our software team to start to develop what we call a serendipity machine. And we haven't been able to do that yet, but I think it is going to remain a challenge. How are young people like yourselves going to find the unexpected? So most of the surveys pretty much are structured in such a way that you say what you want to do and then you build your software to do it. So if you're doing a survey, you'll make maps, you'll identify sources, you'll do all kinds of physics on the sources and get their infrared and their redshift and all the rest of it. But then you'll go into the next survey and the data will be left there and where do we then go to go through that data again and say, well, what is it that we've missed? And uh, you mentioned just then about how your expertise is in uh, the field of extra galactic astronomy and uh, in particular I think you, you've made your mark on, on the field of the study of, of radio galaxies with the fanaroff riley classification uh, from your work with Julia Riley. Um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about radio galaxies and how you classify them? Let me first say that uh, there was a lot of luck involved in this whole thing. You have to be in the right place at the right time. And Julia and I were at Cambridge when the One Mile Telescope was really coming into use. That was the first big Earth rotation interferometer uh, and then the Five Kilometre Telescope. So the first really detailed maps of ex- of radio galaxies and quasars were being made with those telescopes. And we were lucky enough to be there at the time. We noticed that there were were really two kinds of maps which were coming off the telescope. One showed jets coming out of the galaxies or the quasars with bright spots at the ends of the jets and it looked like a snowplow where there was clearly a jet of electrons, radiation, whatever else, sweeping up the intergalactic gas and making a bright spot at the end. Then there was another kind where there was no bright spot at the end and fairly obvious that what was happening was that a jet was starting from the galaxy in the centre and becoming more and more diffuse as it went out into the intergalactic gas. And we also noticed that the ones with the bright spots at the end, which subsequently became called FR2 galaxies, were in general more powerful in terms of their radio radiation than the ones with the more diffuse jets called FR1. So we wrote a paper in 1974 um, pointing out there were the two different kinds of shapes and that there was this link with power and it didn't form part of my thesis or Julia's thesis and we left it at that and I left radio astronomy not long after that and uh, was quite surprised to discover that it was still being cited many years later. But to the best of my knowledge, it's not yet clear why you have the two different morphologies and what causes the different shapes of the jet. So is it the environment, in other words, the density of the gas in the galaxy or between the galaxies, or is it the temperature of the gas, or is it movements in the gas, or is it the way the jets are launched from close to the black hole? And as people will know, in the centres of all of these big galaxies is a huge black hole with a mass of many million 
Einstein's time is a mass of the sun. So around the black hole there's normally a torus of some sort, pancake, and the jets appear to be launched from very close to the black hole. So it's not clear whether the different shapes come from some conditions close to the black hole or whether they're determined by the environment further out. I'm not necessarily very up-to-date, so I could well be wrong, but I, I certainly haven't seen anything that gives a comprehensive uh, answer to those questions. Are those questions that you're hoping that the SKA and Meerkat will be able to answer? Yeah, I hope so. As I said earlier, the more detail you see, the more challenging it is, but equally you have more clues as to what's going on. But we may also find surprising things. We may find that there are, in fact, different shapes that we haven't seen up to now because we haven't had the dynamic range. We haven't been able to see very faint structures. And I suspect we are going to see some of that. And we may have to reevaluate the whole issue of whether there are two shapes or more than two kinds of shapes. You mentioned that you left radio astronomy not long after your thesis was published. Where did you go then? I went back to South Africa early in 1974 and I spent a year trying to find something that I could do to oppose apartheid, which, as people know, was the system in South Africa at that time. And I'd more or less given up and I was about to go back to Sussex University when I discovered people who were starting to build non-racial trade unions, primarily among black workers which at that time were not illegal, but they were not recognised by law and they were not popular with the security police. I started to work with those people in 1975. In 1976, all the organisers of the unions were banned by state, which meant they were essentially house-arrested. So I left the university and became a union organiser and was there for 19 years until the first democratic elections in 1994 and then I went into President Mandela's office as a head of what was called the Office for the Reconstruction and Development Programme, which was the programme of government to start to redress the inequalities and the crimes of apartheid. And so it was recognised at that point that astronomy could have a useful role to play in doing that? No, not directly. Remember, I hadn't been an astronomer for a long time by then. Mm. But in 1996, the first white paper was published. Uh, Rob Adam was a key author of that. And one of the things that it said was that South Africa must invest in fundamental science as well as applied science, because if we don't do that, we're permanently relegating ourselves to the status of a second-rate nation. And astronomy was one of the obvious sciences where we had a geographical advantage. We have dark skies, we have areas which are far away from radio interference, which of course is what one needs for a radio telescope, and we had good infrastructure. So astronomy and paleontology, where you've got a fantastic history of hominids, for instance, and pre-hominid evolution, uh, were obvious sciences for South Africa to prioritise. And of course, those dark southern skies are inaccessible to Northern Hemisphere astronomers. Yes, but I think it's quite astounding to be out in the Karoo where the SKA is being built and look up at the Milky Way. My niece, who at that time was living in Liverpool and had never been to South Africa, came to South Africa when she was 15 and we took her out to one of the game parks and the first evening we had a barbecue and she looked up at the sky and was completely gobsmacked because from Liverpool she'd only seen a pink sky and here she could see the Milky Way in all its glory, so it's really a spectacular sight. Yeah. I can relate to that. I think it's very similar here in Manchester. Do you have anything else to go for? 
kind of touched on it when I asked about what you were excited about for the SKA science-wise. In terms of the role of astronomy in South Africa and science as a whole kind of going into the future, where would you like to see that go? I think astronomy is going to be big news in South Africa. The meerkat is already, as you said earlier, producing spectacular results. And of course there are a lot of other things which we haven't discussed, like pulsar science, which is going to do very well. We have other telescopes on the SKA site, like the HERA telescope, which is a joint venture between ourselves and Cambridge and various institutions in the USA, which is looking for the signs of the first stars turning on the reionization of the early universe. And there are various other uh, instruments on the site. So I think there's going to be a lot of very exciting science coming out of that. We have dynamic university groups now where young people are getting really good data to work on. So I think astronomy is going to grow. We are also investing in upgrading what's called the SALT telescope, the Southern African Large Telescope, which is a 10-meter optical telescope. It's a couple of hours south of Carnarvon where we're building the SKA. It's a very dark site, and the idea is to upgrade the SALT telescope so that it can be an exoplanet follow-up telescope, which will be good, and also can do follow-up on transients. So, for instance, the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, will produce lots and lots of candidate sources which change quickly, and SALT will be able to follow them up. So SALT is going to be a nice telescope. There is already on the same mountaintop as the SALT telescope, there's a smaller telescope which is slaved to the meerkat. So anything that the meerkat is looking at, the optical telescope is looking at at the same time. And that'll also be nice for transient sources. So if something turns on in the radio, you'll immediately have a record of what it's doing in the optical wavelengths as well. So I think astronomy is going to grow well there. But there's also essentially a challenge for South Africa as well as other countries. Although there's been a lot of hype about the fourth industrial revolution, there's no doubt that the technologies are making real changes in industry, in the way we deliver services, in our social media and all kinds of things. And we can't ignore that. There are new industries which are worth trillions of dollars and South Africa can't afford to be left behind. And sciences like astronomy attract the best young people and give them a training which is very valuable in data science and a whole range of other applicable technologies. So if South Africa wants to be a player in this new global economy, we have to keep investing in sciences like that and nanotechnology and genomics and so on. Because not only do we have to keep up with this fourth industrial revolution, but we want to actually play an important part in it. What do you mean when you say fourth industrial revolution? Well, it's not a term that I've coined. It's a term coined by Klaus Schwab, who's the guy who established the World Economic Forum. I think it's a, he uses it to describe the coming together of a lot of new technologies which are having an impact on the way we do manufacturing production, the way we deliver services and so on. But probably the most important technologies there are big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning and so on. But also, and I suppose linked to that, is things like genomics. Uh, we can get uh, data, bioinformatics very quickly now in huge volumes. Nanotechnologies and issues, smart materials. So all of these things are changing the way we do production. They're changing the way our services are delivered. They're changing the way logistics works. And he's put that all together into the fourth industrial revolution, where I suppose you could say that big data is the kind of driving force in the way that electricity 
European petrol were a driving force in previous industrial revolution. Whether you call it an industrial revolution or not, I think is not the point. Though. The new technologies are, are certainly driving changes. Yeah. So I guess it will be the challenge that falls to people like us to be able to wield big data and make sense of it. I think so. And the UK, of course, has said for some time that it wants to be a leading player in data science because it's so important in the future. But the UK and the European Union in general have a real challenge because the Chinese are investing very heavily in machine learning, artificial intelligence and so on. The US is investing heavily and it's not easy to keep up and play a leading role. So I think there's going to be a challenge for most countries. Uh, You know, do we get left behind? or not. And of course, various of your leading scientists have said that there's not only an upside to this, there's a downside, which is, will artificial intelligence get out of control? So autonomous weapons are the obvious one, but there are all kinds of other possibilities. I went to the Commonwealth Science Conference last year in Singapore, and I heard for the first time about uh, something called synthetic biology, where you take uh, over-the-counter things and mix them up and make artificial molecules which have life and it was quite scary, you know, so there's these risky bits as well as the the upside. Well, it seems like that's going to be a, an interesting thing to look out for going into the future yeah. then. Well, that's, that's what they say. May you live in interesting times. Well, I think what it is going to do, though, is to force governments to take science and scientists very seriously because, first of all, to maintain a leading role in these new technologies and, secondly, to be able to regulate and manage these risks is not something bureaucrats can do on their own. They have to involve science and scientists and that, of course, can only be good for science because it means that there'll have to be more investment into science. And it means that scientists will be taken more seriously in making policy and regulations, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That sounds like a natural place to cut it, I reckon. What do you reckon? Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you. Thank you you very much for your time. And so you will be opening the inaugural Fanroff Lecture this evening. I will. I'll be introducing Rob Adam, who will be giving the lecture. And I must congratulate Manchester University on this initiative. I think it's a great idea to stimulate the involvement of scientists in policy. And of course, there's science for policy and policy for science, and hopefully they'll cover both areas. Okay, so thank you once again. Thank you. Good.